Welcome to Great Plains Anywhere, a Paul A. Olson lecture from the Center for Great Plains Studies at the University of Nebraska. Today we're speaking with Linda Black Elk, Food Sovereignty Coordinator at United Tribes Technical College in North Dakota. Black Elk is an ethnobotanist specializing in traditional foods of the Great Plains. We've asked her to talk about food sovereignty and her recent work helping the indigenous community connect with traditional foods in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. And now a special note from Margaret Hiddle, Anishinaabe, Assistant Professor of History and Ethnic Studies at UNL and Center for Great Plains Studies Board of Governors member. On behalf of the Center for Great Plains Studies, I would like to begin by acknowledging that the University of Nebraska is a land-grant institution with campuses and programs on the past, present, and future homelands of the Pawnee, Ponca, Oto, Missouri, Omaha, Lakota, Dakota, Arapaho, Cheyenne, and Kaw peoples, as well as the relocated Ho-Chunk, Iowa, and Sac and Fox peoples. Please take a moment to consider the legacies of more than 150 years of displacement, violence, settlement, and survival that bring us here today. This acknowledgement and the centering of Indigenous peoples is a start as we move forward together for the next 150 years. Hi, I'm Katie Newland, and I'm the Center's Assistant Director. Uh, I'm Michael Ekstrom. I'm an Assistant Research Professor at the Center for Great Plains Studies. Hi, everyone. I'm Linda Black Elk. I'm an ethnobotanist and a food sovereignty activist, and I teach up at United Tribes Technical College, which is a tribal college in Bismarck, North Dakota. So hi everyone, I'm so honored to be talking to you all today and um, something that's really been on my mind and in my heart a lot lately is the connection between COVID-19 and food sovereignty. And those to a lot of people I think might seem uh, like really disparate um, uh, topics, but uh, particularly within indigenous communities, they're incredibly connected. Um, when we talk about COVID-19 and its impact in indigenous communities, we have to remember that um, indigenous people are three and a half times more likely to become infected with the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Um, and they are up to 10 times more likely to have severe uh, consequences, severe reactions to a COVID-19 infection. Um, and, you know, it's, we're, we're finding, you know, there are a lot of studies out there that show that American Indians and Alaska Natives um, are at higher risk for long-term complications from COVID-19. And so these are things that, um, of course, as an Indigenous woman with Indigenous children, these are things I really have to think about. Um, and I have to think about, uh, you know, those long-term impacts and how I can um, serve my community in a good way right now during this ultra strange, crazy, and scary time for us. Um, you know, I think one of the first things I always like to ask myself is why? You know, why are we at higher risk? Why are we seeing uh, more complications from a COVID-19 infection? And, you know, we could probably talk about that for hours that we don't have today. But, uh, you know, I think that poverty, of course, has a lot to do with it. A lack of access to really good health care um, is one of the biggest issues. But, of course, as I was saying earlier, food and food sovereignty really have a lot to do with um, uh, you know, the hugely high rates of COVID-19 infections and complications in Indian country. 
Um, so what is food sovereignty? Uh, what does that even mean? Um, you know, it's different than food security. You might have heard the term food security thrown around. And food security is just basically making sure everyone has enough food. Everyone has enough calories that they're taking in. You know, uh, even if you're, you know, the backpack programs in, in elementary schools where they send kids home with a backpack full of, you know, maybe bread, canned soup, things like that, ramen noodles sometimes, that's food security right? Making sure everyone, that no one is actually hungry because they have enough calories. Food sovereignty is different, right? Um, uh, it, you know, it, it worries me when I see those backpack programs in schools, it worries me uh, the amount of sodium that young people are taking home with them, for example. Um, it worries me because food sovereignty is really about having choice, right? Being able to make choices. Um, if I go into a grocery store, am I going to be able to access um, the foods of my ancestors? Are, are my, is, is my husband and my children, are they going to be able to access food that doesn't just provide calories for them, right? Because it's not enough. Food shouldn't just nourish us physically. It should nourish us mentally and emotionally and even spiritually. And when we're eating the foods of our ancestors, we are being nourished by so much more than just calories, right? We are connecting, you know, our, our very genetics are connected to those foods. And um, that really, uh, when, when we have food sovereignty, we really have these, these connections that, that uh, ripple out into our communities. Um, and also when you're eating traditional foods, you're actually getting um, uh, nourishment that your body recognizes, you know, on a cellular level. Um, and so those, those calories will actually nourish you more. Um, uh, provide more nourishment, more uh, nutrients that your body needs than processed foods or Western or colonized foods, whatever you want to call them. So um, it's it's really important. The the colonized diet, um, the diet that's high in sodium, high in refined sugar, high in food colorings and preservatives, um, that has actually uh, that has actually reduced us. <laughs> Um, to these high-risk categories, not just for COVID-19, right? Um, high-risk categories that include heart disease, diabetes, asthma, and many others. And what are the greatest risk factors for complications and death from COVID-19? That same heart disease, the same diabetes, the same asthma, all risk factors for, for not, not just complications, but death. And I live in Bismarck, North Dakota. I live on the traditional homelands of the Ocheti Shakoi, which are the Lakota, Dakota, and Nakota peoples. This is also the traditional homelands of the Mandan, the Hidatsa, and the Arikara peoples. And all around me, you know, I'm in this sort of central spot, this sort of where, where a lot of different tribes meet. We even have um, Ojibwe here in North Dakota. And um, I'm seeing elders dying all around me. And we're, we're not just talking, you know, elders who, you know, maybe are in a nursing home or whatever. We're talking about active um, uh, knowledge holders. Uh, some of them, uh, you know, how many fluent speakers do you think are left of the Lakota language? Not many. And just in the past couple of months, 
just Standing Rock alone, the Standing Rock Reservation, which borders North and South Dakota, just Standing Rock alone has lost four fluent first language speakers, right? Speakers of the Lakota language. And I mean, that is knowledge, that's a worldview that will never get back. And that none of us were able to document sufficiently um, before they passed, you know? I mean, it's just, uh, I'm getting goosebumps just talking about it because it's just such a, a loss of regal, traditional, amazing people, uh, people who have been able to guide us into a future of food sovereignty, but also language acquisition and, and knowledge, you know? That, that uh, you know, I, I believe that without those elders and their work, in their final years, we wouldn't even be um, as as healthy as we are emotionally and mentally. Um, and so, you know, we're we're seeing our elders dying all around us. But in the you know in the media, we're seeing people who are like, oh, you know, and 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 even Trump, you know, and his discussion of like, oh, it's not that big a deal. Don't let it control your life. Obviously, you know, when you have access to healthcare, when you have access to, you know, all the money in the world, maybe it's not as big of a deal. But among indigenous communities, not, not even just here um, in the United States, uh, but, you know, um, all over the world in, in indigenous communities, even on other continents, um, we're seeing, you know, high rates of death, particularly among our elders. And, and that's just, it's such a loss. And so what I've been doing, the work I've been doing um, has been to try to forward um, the, the cause of food sovereignty because we will get through this, okay? We will get through COVID-19. We're gonna lose a lot of knowledge holders. We're gonna lose a lot of our elders as we have been, but I believe we're gonna get through it. The problem is, is in, in, in all of the data supports this, this is not the last pandemic virus we're going to see in my lifetime, right? By all accounts, my life is half over. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I don't think I've ever actually said that out loud, but it's true. <laughs> and, um, you know, I'm 46. Um, but by, you know, uh, if we look at the data, this is not the last pandemic virus we're going to see because of climate change, because of drilling, because of um, what we're doing to our food and our water and our air. This is not the last pandemic virus we're going to see. And I will be damned if I'm going to let this uh, happen again to our communities. If we're going to keep losing our elders to these uh, viruses, to these new diseases that are popping up all around us. Um, and so food sovereignty, I believe, is the best way to try to make sure that our communities are able to handle these issues in the future. Um, so that's that's what we've, we've been doing. Um, even, even on a small scale, you know, I, I have a lot of friends and allies um, who are, of course, feeding their communities right now and trying to feed them beautiful, what we call medicine soups, um, you know, making huge kettles of soup enough to feed 30 to 50 people um, at a time. There's a lot of us doing that. My family and I have actually been putting food kits together, traditional food kits. And so these are like, you know, um, 18 gallon totes filled with traditional foods like um, traditional breadroot, which you can actually see some right back here, filled with um, things like breadroot, 
Pediomelum esculentum, um, also known as tinsila in the Lakota language. <laughs> you know, we've been handing out these food kits with traditional foods like the tinsila, like real maple syrup, which is actually not just sweet, it's also medicinal. Um, it sounds crazy, but uh, real traditional uh, maple syrup um, is actually good for diabetics. It's actually, it, it helps to improve pancreatic function. Um, so it's a, you know, uh, a, a wonderful thing to put in the these kits for our elders. Um, you know, we're, we're putting in things like uh, teas, you know, different medicinal but beautiful teas that, that like I said, um, I've had elders come to us and say, oh my gosh, I haven't had real mint tea with real rose hips since I was a little girl, you know. We're putting in traditional varieties of beans. We're putting in, uh, you know, uh, hominy, real like uh, uh, ash, you know, nixtamalized dried hominy into our kits. And, um, you know, it's, it's amazing to see that example, what I was saying earlier about how food can nourish us spiritually and emotionally. And it's amazing to see elders react to traditional foods and saying, oh my gosh, I can't wait to cook with that or have my grandchild cook with that. You know, so um, it's, it's really a beautiful thing. And by doing that, we're introducing them to these foods reintroducing them to these foods that, that actually a lot of people didn't think they had any access to anymore. You know, how many times can you get real canoe harvested wild rice, right? You can't go into the grocery store and get it. Um, and the patty rice, you know, the, the GMO often raised in patty right, wild rice is not the same at all. Doesn't even have the same nutritional uh, value. Um, and so, you know, we're providing that for our elders who are then sharing it with their children and their grandchildren. And I believe that's gonna have a really long-term positive impact on our communities. And as an ethnobotanist, of course, I have a much different relationship with plants than a lot of people. Um, I go out and I talk to plants, I pray with them, I sing to them. And I, you know, what I tell people is they speak to me as well. You know, they communicate. Um, which you should see what happens when I tell my vegan friends that they don't like that at all. <laughs> but that's okay. I, you know, I, but I have a mostly plant-based diet anyway. Um, but, um, you know, I speak to plants and they speak back to me. They communicate with me. And, and I remember an elder once telling me that if you listen really carefully, you'll actually hear um, plants in our traditional food saying, you know, I know you. I recognize you. I knew your grandmother. I knew, you know, your ancestors. And I know you. And, um, you know, I, I feel like that's true. And I think that that's true for everyone, not even just indigenous people, that we should all try to get back to something that resembles as traditional a diet as possible um, for our own physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual health. What, I, I know that you have other programs uh, at the Travel College. Can you talk a little bit more about those, like the garden? Sure, of course. Yep, so like I was saying earlier, I teach at United Tribes Technical College. Um, I'm part of the land-grant programs there, which we hate that name. We're actually thinking about changing it to the Center for Food Sovereignty on the Great Plains or something. but. Um, we have huge gardens at United Tribes. And the thing is, I think a lot of people don't think of, of, of North Dakota as a place for gardening. You know, it gets extremely cold here, extremely cold, you know, minus 65 Fahrenheit sometimes. And um, it's, uh, you know, I, I know it isn't exactly balmy down in Lincoln, Nebraska in the middle of the winter, but you know, here it gets extremely cold and for long periods of time. But, um, you know, 
I was actually out just the other day still in early November um, harvesting collard greens and kale from the gardens at United Tribes. And, um, you know, we have like huge high tunnels where we were able to still be harvesting tomatoes just a week ago, you know. Um, uh, it's, it's really amazing. You know, when we first started those gardens, um, and I wasn't working at United Tribes when that happened, but when we first started um, those gardens, it was for a research focus. Like, oh, what kind of research could we do on the best kind of gardening for this area or the best kind of corn to grow or the best kind of squash? Um, when this pandemic started, uh, the people in, my, in, in our, this program, in the land grant program, we got together and we said, you know what? Um, research is fine and it's fun and it's interesting, but that's not what's going to feed people. And what we need to focus on is feeding people. And so we just planted huge swaths of, <laughs> of, of you know, food. And um, we, every single Monday throughout the late spring, summer, um, and even, you know, till now, I think our last um, food distribution of fresh vegetables, fruit and vegetables was just last week. You know, we've been able to feed probably 50 people fresh fruits and vegetables every single week for months, be just because we decided we were going to um, focus on feeding people instead of doing research, you know? And it's, it's been amazing to see, um, and it's been amazing to see how many people wanted that so much, you know? Sometimes we would make 50 fruit and vegetable kits to hand out, um, on these Mondays and, and we would be, they would be gone in 10 minutes and, you know, there'd be another 75 people in line, you know, and that's in Bismarck, North Dakota, <laughs> where, you know, it's, it's actually, um, I, I remember one of the first times I saw quote, a salad bar in, in Bismarck, North Dakota, and it was lettuce, cheese, and croutons on the salad bar. Um, that was it. <laughs> oh, no, I'm sorry. There was like some mayonnaise sort of macaroni salad thing on there too, right? Um, or, or the first time, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I remember um, what, what, what people call fruit salad is not, you know, oftentimes doesn't really even have fruit in it here in, in North Dakota. And I know that that's true in a lot of the Midwest, but um, it's very often uh, jello and marshmallows um, <laughs> and no, no actual fruit. You know, I think that we really are working to change that. And I see the progress. I see the progress. I see that more restaurants are serving traditional foods. There's, there's one right here in Bismarck, North Dakota that will buy things like nettles and June berries and stuff like that from community members. Um, you know, and they serve stuff like trout and salmon and bison. Um, you know, I, I'm seeing a much greater interest in that, even in, you know, just burger places, uh, you know, like, oh, you know, we'll put a lettuce wrap on the menu. Even, you know, those little, those little things, right? That, that, the, those small changes. Something that I, I, I say, because when we're talking about food sovereignty, I used to be really mean about it. <laughs> I, I used to be just a person, you know, and, and, and I'm not exactly not mean about it now. I think I'm just more gentle. But I used to say, you know, fry bread is the food of the colonizer. And, you know, that's the, the food they forced on us. And, and it, those things are true. I still believe that. I do believe fry bread is the food of the colonizer. And I, I believe that it is highly implicated in a lot of the health issues we face today. But 
man, indigenous people have a love affair with fry bread that when, when I would talk like that, when I would talk and be really angry about it, they would get angry at me in return and it would actually have the opposite effect of what I wanted. And so I've become more gentle now. And instead of talking about eliminating things from your diet, you know, eliminate fry bread, eliminate refined sugar, eliminate refined flour. Um, <laughs> I talk about adding things instead now. You know, I say, oh, you're gonna make fry bread? Um, well, tell me about the soup you're having. You know, did you put some timpsila in there? Have you ever tried um, chopped cabbage in your soup? Um, have you ever tried to make fry bread with part acorn flour or, you know, um, or, or even part almond flour, you know, which is something easier to access now. Um, you know, I, I talk about, oh, okay, I see, you know, you're, you're going to have um, a bowl of ramen noodles. Have you ever thought about making it beautiful and putting radishes and cilantro and sliced onion on your ramen noodles? And, um, or have you ever thought about using bone broth in, in there instead of that horrible seasoning packet? You know, um, those are the kinds of things that I try to say because I believe that food sovereignty is going to come almost in baby steps but I see the impact of those baby steps every day. So it's exciting. <laughs> what can non-Indigenous people do to support food sovereignty and Indigenous rights? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that, um, I think, of course, something that non-Native people can do, non-Indigenous people, is to um, really, think about food sovereignty in their own lives, you know, think about their connection to food and how they can support um, community gardens right there in their community. Plant a garden yourself and then share what you produce. Um, I think that, you know, I, I mean, there, there are huge things, right? We, we all want to see, um, you know, do I want to say it? The fall of the patriarchy and, um, <laughs> and destructive, Un, uncontrolled capitalism, you know, and, and, but, but even that I believe is going to come in baby steps. We see the impact of that already. We see that happening. And, um, you know, I, I think that growing a garden is an act of resistance, right? Because that's food that they don't make money off of, that they don't have control of. They can't spray that with 55 different herbicides, pesticides, and fungicides. And, you know, that, that is an act of resistance that we can all participate in. You know, you can, and, and for people who don't have, you know, having access to land, even for a garden, I realize is a privilege, you know? And so, um, you know, you can, this, this spring, we were growing huge amounts of arugula and lettuces in old foil turkey roasting pans, you know, those round oval shaped turkey roasting pans. We were growing arugula and lettuce and cilantro in those, you know. Um, you don't, you, you know, it, it doesn't have to be fancy. And, and you know, I think that that's a, something that a lot of people miss. Um, and, and this goes for non-Indigenous people too. Food sovereignty doesn't have to be bougie, right? It doesn't have to be fancy. It's, um, it's just a matter of, of, of making the choice to eat um, food that doesn't contribute to the problem, right? Um, it, it, it's, it's just about making those choices in your everyday lives and, and, and starting off small. Instead of, you know, if people are going to be eating a bunch of meals you know, as families uh, for the next couple of months, you know, because of various holidays or whatever, um, instead of serving 
corn from a can, try looking for indigenous varieties of corn. And, and, and if you, you know, have access to those, um, contact indigenous uh, producers. I mean, that's a huge way to help, right? Like, um, I know so many indigenous farmers, um, indigenous producers, friends who um, uh, grow their own corn and then nixtamalize it, package it, and then sell it. Um, but a lot of my friends, you know, who are indigenous producers, actually, um, you know, you can pay them, right? Everyone needs, we, we do live in a cash economy and that's important. But um, you can also support them by offering trade items as well, you know? Um, and, and, you know, if you want to think of it that way, that's, that's fine. So, you know, I, we recently traded uh, a bunch of dried buffalo meat for, you know, some, some maple syrup, for example. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, those things are really important. So growing your own food, looking at food sovereignty in your own everyday life, but also supporting indigenous producers, I think are just two really simple things that people can do. And there are lists all over the place of indigenous restaurants, indigenous farmers, indigenous gardeners, um, indigenous food producers, so chefs even. But Linda also really um, is a big advocate for mutual aid and indigenous education and works with Sean Sherman, um, the sous chef, and uh, Native American Indigenous Food Alliance, and has, I've really witnessed uh, in the last nine months, the complete and total rise of mutual aid from indigenous communities providing non-indigenous people a path forward. And I'm actually, you know, I, I'm glad that you mentioned Sean because, um, you know, Sean has this gorgeous restaurant that just opened. You know, it, it's basically a restaurant, the Indigenous Food Lab um, in Minneapolis. And, um, you know, he has a, another restaurant that, that will be opening. And um, this, is, this is, to me, so typical of what's going on in Indigenous communities right now. Instead of opening this restaurant and, you know, charging the money per plate, um, they got a grant and they are literally cooking hundreds of meals a day to hand out and even freezer meals. They're, they're freezing them and handing them out to community members, even non-native community members, you know, and, and Sean is doing that on a large scale, but he's not the only one, right? You know, even here in Bismarck, like I said, we, um, we are providing food for families and, and individuals. Um, down in Rapid City, Natalie Stites Means and um, Skybird Black Owl and uh, Helene Gaddy down on the Pine Ridge Reservation. You know, they're all trying, so, so we have this network. It's the craziest thing through social media where someone will say, does anyone have an extra squash? Because <laughs> I'm cooking today, you know, for 40 people and I need a squash. And someone will say, okay, I have one, I'll run it over to you, you know? Um, that's the type of network that we've built up to where someone will say, oh, hey, uh, you know, Linda brought me two pounds of wild rice the other day. Um, and now I'm going to feed 60 people with those two pounds of wild rice and a bunch of other stuff that I'm throwing into here. 
or one of our friends, she butchers buffalo all the time and she hands buffalo bones out to all of us so we can make huge amounts of buffalo bone broth to make soup, you know, for community members. And, and I, I really think that that's such a beautiful phenomenon that I'm not seeing in the non-native community. I'm, I don't mean to call people out or anything, but you know, why aren't uh, some of these amazing restaurants that have had to, you know, some of them have just closed their doors for a while. Um, why instead aren't they finding funding, you know, maybe from local, state, federal governments to keep their doors open and just cook for people? You know, <laughs> I, I, I don't see enough of that, but I'm seeing that in indigenous communities. And I think that it's a really beautiful example that people people could take. We have to feed each other, you know, and, and food, I think, you know, good food, good, healthy food is really the key toward um, making sure that we're able to weather these pandemics in the future. We just thank you so much for talking with us today. And um, Michael, thank you for being here as well. And uh, we really appreciate it. So this has just been so nourishing for me as well. So thank you so much. We'd like to thank Linda Black Elk for speaking with us today. Find all of our Short Great Plains talks and interviews as videos and podcasts at go.unl.edu slash gplectures.